Hey everybody, good to see you tonight. Glad you're here. Uh, we gathered to look into the Bible, see what God might say to us. And so, we're going to open our time in prayer. Uh, let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, the opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus. We thank you that you show up uh, and you're here in our midst. Uh, we know that because you say so. And so, we trust your word and we welcome you. Here in our midst, we ask that you would lead us, guide us, speak to us. We ask you that you would anoint this time. And we pray, Father, for revelation, understanding, instruction. Ask God that we would be open to receive what you want to say. Uh, we give our time, our, our hearts, our minds. We say, God, uh, have your way. And I pray, Father, that we would be open to maybe something new tonight. We'll be open maybe to something that we hadn't known or we don't know. We ask you, Father, that this would be a time where we encounter you. Uh, we encounter one another and we allow your truth to have its way in our life. We pray wisdom and understanding. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's open up to John chapter 11. John 11. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that web page, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If you need a Bible uh, located on the tables, feel free to uh, use. You may have any Bible that you get your hands on <laughs> and it's on a table. We obtain Bibles to give away. So we'd love for you to take that. John chapter 11 and verses 50 through 53. John 11 Verses 50 through 53. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, he plotted to take his life. All right, thanks for reading that. Uh, it's always an interesting part of the scripture because you've got uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, who was the high priest at that time, 
he speaks this word out, and he meant one thing, but God totally used that to mean something else. And I thought it was kind of interesting how God does that. Uh, he is in understanding the structure of the way that their system of government worked. Uh, they were, of course, under the uh, occupation of the Romans, but uh, in, in normal times, the way that their system of government worked, they would have a king, but they would also have a high priest. And both of those positions were considered rules of the people. So the high priest was a ruler of the people. Uh, king was ruler of the people. And now, of course, like I said, they were under occupation, so uh, they weren't functioning fully in all that they were supposed to be doing. But in their system and their understanding, the high priest held an important job, a position of influence, a position of leadership, and was expected to move in that kind of an authority and was expected to exercise that kind of an authority over the people and over the function and nature of what was going on in the nation. So he begins this, and he's answering something here, and you can read back and see what's going on. But interestingly, he speaks this out, and he has a specific meaning by this and what he says. Uh, his specific meaning he's talking about is like, well, you need to realize that you need to realize what's good for you. And this is what's good for you is that you got this guy who is guilty of or likely guilty of sedition against the Romans. And that creates trouble for the whole nation. And so it's better that we take care of business ourselves and make sure this guy dies than he brings down the wrath of the Roman government on us as a people. And so in his mind, he's saying that. He's saying, okay, well, it's better that we get rid of this guy who's going to cause big problems for us uh, than it would be to just allow him to continue doing what he's doing because that's going to be big problems. And so in the same sense that people will say sometimes, like, you know, one life for many or whatever, he's basically saying that. He says, it's best this guy dies so that we don't get the wrath of the Romans uh, coming down on us. Now, the way the Romans ruled, uh, interestingly, is that they didn't rule uh, in force everywhere. They had, usually had small garrisons in different parts of the empire, and it was, it was the job of that small garrison to enforce certain laws and to make sure taxes were collected and to interface with the local governments. Uh, if any particular place chose to rise up against that garrison, they could probably overpower them, uh, and, but that really wasn't the point. Uh, the point was that if a country, say, decided, well, we're going to just rebel against the Romans, and they rose up against the Romans and, and let's say, they defeated whatever that garrison was that was there to occupy the country. Well, that can be done. The problem was, is what was coming. The problem was is that there was a huge army coming if they did that. And so it was the fear of that that kept these nations and kept these people in line. It wasn't the fact that there was a huge army in every place, everywhere, all the time in the Roman Empire. It was the fact that there was a, a representative, and there was a representative force everywhere within the empire. And if that force somehow, some way was defeated, or somehow, some way there was a rebellion against it, that meant the whole power of the empire was going to come down on those people. And so as the high priest, he's saying, okay, well... He's a leader. He's thinking in terms of political terms, whatever you want to say. 
and he's looking at it and he's saying, this guy is causing trouble. He's got people following him. This guy's got, you know, he says the king of the Jews, whatever it is he's saying. At least that's what they were hearing. We need to put this guy down because we don't want the whole power of the Roman government coming down on us. We don't, we don't need that army coming after us. Okay, so he makes this statement. And what's interesting about the statement that he makes is that it, it could be interpreted the way that he said it. All right, so that's an interpretation. He says this, and that's what he meant. But being the high priest, there's another meaning to what he said. And it's representative of, of the work of Jesus. And we're going to look at that in a few minutes as to what that actually meant. Because what he was talking about, he, he, he spoke this in terms of a geopolitical issue and a way to solve it. But what he also spoke was a spiritual reality to the work and the life of Jesus that he had no way of understanding or knowing. But God used his words and God used him to speak and he prophesied unknowingly about the redemptive work that Jesus was going to do through his death and through his resurrection and what was actually going to happen. He spoke the truth of the actual situation, the spiritual reality of the situation that was taking place with Jesus that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the people and there would be a redemptive work that would take place that would unify and bring those people together. And I look at something like this, and this is why I'm sharing this tonight, is, is looking through this and what God was speaking to me about was like how God uses whoever he wants to. God uses whatever situation he desires to. God uses whatever circumstance that he wants to use. And we're in no position to really dictate how God does things. We're not really in a, a good position to dictate anything about the way God goes about his business. And so here you have a guy who, uh, Caiaphas, who obviously, I mean, he opposed Jesus. He was not only consenting to the death of Jesus, but ordering the death of Jesus. And he was someone that really was working against the redemptive work that Jesus was going to do. And yet God at least in his mind, but God was using him to prophesy a truth and to bring about a reality that was going to result in a redemptive work that would change the world from that point on. Because that was how he chose to do it. And so you think about that in your life. Just for a second. Let this go into your life. What's God going to use to uh, have his will done in your life? What's he going to use for that? I don't know. Neither do you. Uh, we don't. We don't know what those circumstances are, those situations are. We think in terms all the time of, well, he's just going to speak to me and I'll do what he says. Well, maybe. And I'm sure that most of us have at least a kind of a, a hit or miss record with that, right? I mean, that's reality. That guy will speak something. Sometimes we're right on it. Okay, I'm going to do that, God. Yes, we do it. That's great. But there's other times where God will say something to us. We don't want to do that. And so we'll make an excuse or we'll use like the old, you know, Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? I'm not really sure. And we use that to justify an action in our lives. And so it's a miss. So we get a good hit. We get a miss. Eh, you know, God speaks. So we think of God's will being brought about in our life in that way. But there's lots of other ways that God brings about his will in our lives. 
There's all kinds of ways of circumstances, situations. There's, there's people that come and they go and, and whatever it is that he chooses to do. And so we look at things and we want to judge them. And, and I want to encourage you to, to really rethink this in your life. Uh, from the very beginning, and I, I talked about this not too long ago, Adam and Eve, I mean, they weren't created to do certain things. One of the things they weren't created to do was to have the knowledge of good and evil. That, that, that was forbidden, verboten by God. He said, no, you can't do that. He said, you can eat of any tree in the garden. You can eat of the tree of life and live forever. You can eat of the tree, any tree that was in the Garden of Eden they could eat of. He said, except for one, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a good reason for that. We're just really bad at it. We're really bad at figuring that out. We think we're good, which makes us even worse. You know, you ever notice that? If you think you're really good at something that you're not good at, that makes you worse at it whatever that is. And the only reason I'm saying we're not good at it is because God says we're not good at it. So I, I, I understand that. So we're not very good at it. He told us not to mess with it from the very start. We know that those that came before us messed with it. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were cast out of the garden. Uh, and we have what we have today. But what we're looking at with that, and what I really just want you to take hold of, is we need to be careful when we find ourselves in that position. Because there's certain situations, certain circumstances that come up in our lives where we can look at those things and think to ourselves, well, that's bad. Yeah, but that could be the best thing that ever happened to us. It could produce something that would be the best thing that ever happened to us. We don't know that, though. We can't see it. We can't, we can't know that. And so whatever that judgment was that we looked at, we said, well, this is terrible. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's good. Maybe it actually is going to be working toward good in our lives and working toward God's will being done, working towards His purposes being done in our life, working towards us growing as a person, working toward us maturing as a person. Maybe all of these things. Maybe we're going to come into contact with somebody we really need to come into contact with. Maybe we're going to make a friend that will have a friend for the rest of our lives. I don't know. But neither do you. And we don't know what these circumstances that we're facing are going to lead us to. We don't know what these situations that we're facing are going to lead us to. We want to pretend we know because we like to order our world that way. But the reality is, is that we don't know. And so as far as I'm concerned, we can make, we can make better decisions without throwing on the knowledge of good and evil. As we're facing situations, we're facing circumstances, we're facing things in our lives. Maybe that we didn't expect. And so I, I just want to encourage you toward that. Because you look at this situation, you've got the, the Sanhedrin discussing the death of Jesus. And you think to yourself, well, that's bad. Yeah, except for Jesus needed to die. He kept telling his disciples, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I've got to die. That was his purpose, is that he was going to die for the sins of the people. He was going to die to restore relationship with the Father. He was going to die in order to become a sacrificial lamb on God's altar so that we could have life in that more abundantly. And he's telling his disciples that. He's like, yeah, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going, to be, I'm going to be handed over to the Romans, and I'm going to die, or sinful men, and I'm going to die. And 
if you read back through when he started telling his disciples that, Peter rebuked him. Just out and out rebuked him for saying that. Remember Jesus' response to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Right. You're opposing. And you can say, well, he didn't know. Well, yeah, maybe. But he was opposing the will and the work and the power of God in Jesus' life by doing that. And so he put himself in a play, an adversarial position to Jesus and what Jesus wanted, was called to do. And so that was one of those moments, that was one of those situations where you look at it and Jesus is saying one thing and Peter's listening to what he's saying and he makes a judgment on it. I'm going to be handed over to the hands of sinful men. They're going to do what they want with me and they're going to kill me. Well, never. Because he immediately judged that, well, that's bad, right? Doesn't that sound bad? That sounds bad, right? Yeah. So that's bad because it sounds bad. Because we don't know the whole story. Even though Jesus is saying it, even though Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen, even though Jesus is perfectly fine with it, even though Jesus is moving forward toward it, right? He's going toward Jerusalem. So he's going toward that, that purpose and that plan and that will of the Father for his life. He's okay with it. But Peter heard what he said. He's like, well, that's bad. And put himself in an adversarial position to God's will and purpose in the life of Jesus, and ultimately in his own life. When we make those kind of judgments on whatever the circumstance is, situation, how much more dire can you get? They're going to kill me. I mean, it's not, oh, they're going to be mean to me, or they're going to not like me, or they're going to make fun of me, or whatever. You know, it wasn't that. They're going to kill me, is what Jesus said. And Peter reacted to that with, never. Yeah, he put himself in an adversarial position to God's will and purpose in his own life through Jesus. And so we, that's why we need to be careful. Because we don't know. We think we know, but we don't. We want to think we know because it gives us a sense of, I don't know, control or whatever you want to call it. We so we want to think we know, but we really don't. And so, rather than put ourselves in a possible adversarial position to the will and purposes of God in, in our lives, I think it's best to hold that judgment. And let's see. Let's see what God does. Let's see how God redeems. Let's see how God opens up a new door or brings somebody else into our life. Let's just see. Instead of immediately jumping to that place of judgment. The high priest isn't a prophet. Right? And he's not a true prophet in this circumstance. Uh, he was the high priest. He's a leader. He was a religious leader. And he received a word from God, but it wasn't on his own. Okay, do you understand what's happening there? that he, he, he thought he was saying something totally different. He thought he was, you know, just giving some practical advice here about killing off Jesus so they don't irritate the Romans. That's his practical advice. But he was really prophesying something without knowing it, unwittingly. He was prophesying about the redemptive work 
of Jesus. And there's something really powerful about that as a testimony to us. And that's what I'm talking about. That's why we're not jumping to judgment. Because it speaks to us of what God can do, what God can say, and how God can use any situation, any circumstances. He could even take the words of a man who was in a powerful position, a political leader, he could take the words of that man and turn them toward the ultimate and the, the pinnacle of his will and purposes for his son. And that's exactly what he did. He took the man's own words that he meant something totally different for to speak forth the redemptive work of Jesus in our lives. And that's a powerful statement, a powerful statement to me about who's in charge. And so he said, he made the statement, he said, it's expedient. And that word expedient it can have a bunch of different meanings. The literal word that's used there in the language, in the Greek language, is that it is profitable. It was profitable. <laughs> and I don't know if that gives any shade of meaning for you, but it does for me. That you've got this political animal, this, this, this priest, who literally was one of the political leaders of the nation, looking at the situation and saying, this is profitable for us. Profitable. Not just convenient. Not just, oh, this will help us out. This is profitable. In other words, we're going to make out on this. We're going to, we're going to benefit from this. And, and whatever was driving him, he had enough sense, it appeared, to understand that this is something that he thought was going to be of great value to him and the rest of the Sanhedrin. I know you think of them as religious leaders, but, I mean, in a lot of ways, they were just political leaders. You think of them as, uh, as, as leaders of the people as far as spiritually, but by this time and in the circumstances they were in, they had become more of figureheads and they were more of a, a, a political body than they were some type of a religious body. So they're, they're saying, okay, so this is going to be it. Jesus will die for the people. Now, some of your Bibles, the one that, that Jeannie read, it divides them out into two different kinds of people. And that's good because there's two different words used here. There's the word used for the, the idea of the Jewish nation. That's the geopolitical entity of the Israel was a nation among nations. All right, do you understand what I'm saying? And so he meant, and what he said was, is that that this is expedient, it's profitable, that he die for the geopolitical nation of Israel. And that's gonna that's gonna benefit, that's gonna be profitable to the Sanhedrin. But the other word that's used here, and as I said, Jeannie's version, what were you reading out of which one? The one on the table? Okay. That that version draws out the second meaning. Because there's a, there's a second word that's used here, and it's not the geopolitical nation among nations, but it's actually 
You're talking about God's children. It's God's people. Not as a political unit, not as a nation with borders, but as a people. It's kind of like the word kingdom is used in the Bible in different ways. One of the ways that kingdom is used is uh, the realm over which a monarch reigns. In other words, like the geopolitical boundaries of his of his nation. But another way that the word kingdom is used, and it's kind of a, uh, archaic now in our language, but the way it's used is also of the people over whom he reigns. So his kingdom are people. And so this idea that he rules and reigns over the geopolitical thing, okay, but it's really speaking of his rule and reign over his people. And so while the priest is saying, oh, this is going to be great for us as a geopolitical unit and a nation among nations, he was also speaking of is that this he's going to die for God's children that have been scattered everywhere. Everywhere. And, and the idea of God's children being scattered everywhere is this idea is that there need to be some kind of an atonement, there need to be some kind of a sacrifice. Jesus talked about this when he talked about being uh, a, sh- a shepherd. Because there's sheep that are scattered all over the place, and he's the shepherd. He's going to bring them together. Let's look at a couple other verses. Uh, somebody look up Second uh, Corinthians five, Second Corinthians five fourteen and fifteen. 2 Corinthians five fourteen and fifteen. All right, thanks. So you see a, a theological understanding here that Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he's talking about that Jesus died for everybody. And in that word all is an important word there because there would be a folding in of all of God's people. Well, who did he die for? Everybody. Who's eligible to be folded into this family? Everybody. So you don't have to come from a certain family? No. You don't have to have a certain background? No. Um, you, you don't have to come from a specific family, religious family? No. You don't. And, and that's part of the truth and part of the, the powerful truth about Jesus is that he died for everybody, anybody. And, and so there's no prerequisite. That we don't have to meet some standard in order to, to to benefit from what Jesus has sacrificed and what Jesus has done, but that's given to each of us, and that opportunity is given to anyone, anytime, and anywhere. And and so understanding that is to understand His grace, understanding that is to understand His mercy, understand that is to understand His forgiveness, to understand understand how big His love is. And I think many times we diminish his love for some reason, but his love is huge. He's got big love, really big love. Beyond, we, we can't even think of how big his love is. We can't. We can't conceive of that. We can't somehow quantify it. We can't make it big enough in our minds. It's just that much bigger. And so, so who'd he die for? Anybody. Everybody. 
You know, it, and and so you know, people will ask me like, well, what about this person? They're really evil. Yeah, well, Jesus died for them. I, I know they're really evil. I understand that, but they they have opportunity that if they want to know Jesus, they can change. And 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 that his sacrifice extends to them, and his sacrifice and his death, his atonement extends to them. They don't, they're not being forced to do anything, but if somebody wants to know Jesus, they have that opportunity. It's there, ready, willing, and and it's it's for them if they choose to take hold of that. Some of us came from places that were kind of dark and evil. All right. Well, that we didn't come out of like some nice background. Some of us. Some of us didn't come out of some nice place. Some of us didn't come out of some some church place or anything like that. We came out of places that were bad and evil and and whatever else you want to think of them as. Dark. Okay? Well, fine. But His grace extended to us. So we're here today. And And it's one thing for me to say this and you're sitting there like, of course, Andy, why are you even saying that? Well, because then you can't treat people, you can't treat people poorly if they don't measure up to who you think they should be. Because His grace and His love and His mercy has been extended to them. And as a minister of that grace, and as a minister of who Jesus is, as a representative of the Gospel, we need to have that kind of love flowing through us. That's why I'm saying this. I'm saying this because when we begin to cut off the grace and the love and the mercy of God through this statement, well, I don't know if He can even reach Him. Of course He can. We diminish His grace, His mercy, and His love that all of this represents. Well, I'd never say that. Well, maybe not out loud. Maybe not. And so these verses describe God's children as being scattered everywhere. And if you read the Bible and and you look through the history of, of God's people, you see that there were a lot more people under the umbrella of God for a really long time. And the dispersions took place, people left, people went this way, people went that way. Do you ever wonder how at the very beginning they knew how to worship? Because, I mean, there's a whole lot of history in the Bible before there was ever Moses. There's a whole lot of history. There's generations of generations of patriarchs in the Bible that worshiped God, responded to God, had conversations with God, followed after God, did God's will, purpose, plan, whatever it was that he wanted done in the world. There were generations, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of those guys, and they knew somehow how to worship. Job knew how to worship. There was no there was no Moses in law telling him how to worship. He knew how to worship. Job knew how to speak to God. Job knew how to interact with God. Noah knew how to worship. Noah knew how to interact with God. He knew how to sacrifice and to worship and, and to go about the worship of the Father. But he was way before Moses and way before Sinai and way before the law was ever written. You got a guy like Enoch that that he followed after God. He walked with God and was no more because God took him. Well, that was a long time before Moses, a long time before the law. How did he know that? How did he know how to respond to God? How did he know how to walk with God? How did he know how to talk with God? 
And we have to consider that there have been generations and generations and generations in a primitive faith that, that people had been responding and walking and living with God for generations, many thousands of years before there was ever a written law or a written code. There's something that's in us. There's something that God speaks, does, says, reveals. There's an interaction that takes place between us and Him. And somehow, some way, over all of those generations, all of those years, all those centuries, they knew how to respond and they knew how to live with their God and their Maker. Somehow. Well, those people ended up somewhere. Right? Those people that were responding, those people that were speaking, those people that were going about their business, and the business of God. They ended up somewhere. You think about Noah and his sons. Well, his sons were worshipers of God. And they all scattered, but they ended up somewhere, didn't they? Most of the Old Testament is about one nation that God redeemed. And this verse tells us about that nation. But it also tells us about a whole bunch of people that God still loves and God still is after and that God is still responding to, that are still worshiping Him, that have been scattered throughout the whole world. And it would be the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the redemptive work of Jesus that would begin to draw them all together. Somebody look at John ten sixteen. Get a few more verses here. John 10:16 I Alright. Yeah, Jesus said that. Jesus is is clearly clearly speaking here of beyond the borders of Israel. And Paul would take hold of that vision. He would take hold of that call, the Apostle Paul, and he would go beyond the borders of Israel and he would begin to speak and begin to preach and begin to allow for as the Holy Spirit would lead those that would be apart from the nation of Israel coming to know Jesus. Peter at the house of Cornelius, house of Gentiles, witnessed the Holy Spirit fall on those Gentiles and they began to speak in tongues and they began to prophesy to the point he couldn't deny water baptism to him. In other words, the arguments are all there. Everybody had an opinion on it. And there was all these arguments. But Peter saw the power of God fall on those people. They were sheep, not a part of that particular flock that Jesus was in, in Israel. They were out there somewhere, but it would be him that would draw them through his redemptive work in relationship with the Father. And so he says in in Gospel of John ten sixteen, he's like, Well, this is what's gonna happen. And we see it happening through Peter in his ministry at the house of Cornelius, we see it happening through Paul in his ministry as he ministered all through wherever it is you want to say, Asia Minor, Turkey, uh ministering through that area of the world, ministering uh as he went to Rome, ministering through Greece, Macedonia, ministering as he traveled, and these were all people that had been excluded up to this point, 
through the religious bigotry of the people that he was a part of. He's like, that's not going to happen anymore. That's not going to happen anymore. And that was part of the prophecy of the high priest. And I want to tell you something. If the high priest knew he was prophesying that, he would have never said it. He would have never said it. Because ultimately it would undermine their monopoly on God. He ruled in power and had power because people were afraid of him because he had a monopoly on God in their minds. And this completely and utterly, this prophecy undermined that monopoly and ultimately would undercut the power and the authority that the high priest would have from henceforth. And so the death of Jesus, and if you haven't thought about this before, I want you to think about this, the death of Jesus unifies. It unifies. And, and that's what he was prophesying, is that it would bring together and would make these people one. In other words, uh, there's a whole, there, there were whole groups of people out there that were worshiping, but they weren't part of Israel. So they had no identity. There were whole groups of people out there hungry for God, but they weren't part of Israel, so they had no identity in this circumstance. And so it was through the death of Jesus, through the preaching of the apostles, that brought them into a family. That brought them into this relationship with Jesus and gave them their identity. We have an identity because of the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, I, I wasn't born Jewish. I, I don't, I'm not of that descent. It's okay. I have an identity. I have identity in Jesus. I have an identity through His work. I have an identity through His redemption. And it's an identity that I share, and it's a, a place and, and a purpose that I share on in a lot of different places. We travel where? How many continents we travel to? Europe? Well, there's people there that I share things in common with. Why? Because I share in the identity of Christ. We travel to Asia. Well, there's people in Asia I share in that same identity with Christ. I may not speak Chinese, but I, there's a connection between me and that person that I meet that knows Jesus. We share a connection through that relationship and through our part in the same family together. Traveling through Africa. And, and you think about like the, just the parts of that continent and the places that we've been. And the things that we share in common, not because we grew up in the same culture, not because we speak the same language, not because we have something in common like that, it's because of our relationship with Jesus. Yeah, I don't think that I would know Ufi and Olga if I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. All right? But I do know them, and the reason I know them is because of my relationship with Jesus. I don't share hardly anything else in common with them. I didn't grow up like they did. I don't speak the same language as they do. I, I, don't, I don't like some of the same foods that they like. I don't share in a lot of things that they share in. But I do share in something really super important, and that is my relationship with Jesus. And that's the same thing could be said in other parts of the world, in Asia. The same thing could be said in other parts of the world, in Europe. The same thing could be said in South America. The same thing can be said in a lot of places that we've been. That I don't share in the same backgrounds and I don't share in a lot of the same experiences. But man, I share in this one thing and that is Jesus died for me. Oh, Jesus died for you? 
we got a lot in common. And in that, that commonality isn't just words. It's not just me saying that here. It's the reality of it. And it's the reality that we've experienced year in and year out. Opportunity after opportunity. It's a reality that I have more in common with people, some of these people that I've never met before. I have more in common with them through my relationship with Jesus than I do with people I see every day here. I have more in common with that other person. Someone look at Ephesians 1.10. Ephesians 1.10. So in administration of the fullness of the times, some of all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. All right. And so what that talks about is that summation is that unification. And, and it's that unification, that bringing together that Jesus accomplishes through his redemptive work. In Ephesians, Paul, he, he constantly defends this work of bringing things together. He constantly defends this work of God's children being scattered everywhere but being drawn together through Christ. And the reason he constantly defends that is because it's being attacked all the time. That there were people, and they're the religious people, well-meaning people, I suppose, that attacked that all the time. Christians that attacked that all the time in his day, that they've got to come through this. This is the only door. They've got to come through this. They've got to look like us. They've got to come through this. They've got to sound like us. They've got to come through this. They've got to act like us. They've got to come through this. They've got to be like us. They've got to eat the same way we do. They've talked the same way we do. And that was their message. And Paul constantly was defending the fact that Jesus was reaching beyond those barriers. He was reaching beyond all of those things. And he was saying, we've got more in common with these people through Jesus than we do through any other means. And it was a, it was a consistent battle that he had to fight in order to overcome the preconceptions and the bigotry of the people that were his brothers and sisters. It's the death of Jesus that unifies and brings together and makes us one. Now, you have to look at, at God, and, and I want to get back to this because I had started talking about this a little bit. Well, how's God going to fulfill His purpose? Well, any way He chooses. And you got to leave it up to Him. Because he, he took, like in this circumstance, He took the, the words of this man. And it was God who fulfilled the words of the wicked. This guy was wicked. See, uh, Caiaphas. And it was God who would fulfill the words of the wicked in a way that He absolutely, positively never intended. But sometimes God does that. Sometimes God will take hold of something that somebody says and He will fulfill it in such a way that's exactly what they said, but not the way they intended. So, He, he might even... He, he may even use the wicked and the plots of the wicked to actually fulfill 
and be the very means of His purposes being fulfilled in our lives. The Bible talks about this when it talks about how God takes that which the devil is meant for evil. You know the rest of that? And He turns it towards our good, for our good. Yeah. And so understanding that is to understand that we serve a God that is more than able to do that. And so we need not fear those type things. We just need not fear. Sometimes I hear politicians say things, and I'm not afraid when I hear them say it. I just feel bad for them. Like, man, you shouldn't have said that. And, and that could be anything. Uh, uh, recently, I heard a guy, well, within the last few years, heard a guy talking, and he's like, yeah, um, this is something that... that um, I can't remember the exact words, but basically he was just saying, do what I say because prayer isn't going to make a difference. And God God can't do this. Pretty much what he said. So you do what I tell you to do. And I remember I heard him say that, and I'm, I'm not quoting him exactly, but man, I, I thought to myself, wow, you shouldn't have said that. I just felt bad. You know, I felt badly for the guy. It's like, you really shouldn't have said that. That that's like things aren't going to go good now, for you, buddy. And they didn't. They didn't. It, but but I, it, it's one of those moments where we. You know, I think if we can get get a hold of a, a certain perspective and a certain way of looking at things, we don't have to live in fear. We don't need to live in fear of words. We don't need to live in fear of proclamations. We don't need to, need to live in fear. But understanding that God takes circumstances, situations, He He uses people, He takes their words or whatever, but He brings about His purposes, His design, His plan, and He brings it about for our good, our growth, our life. So at the end of this, and this is where I'm going to bring us to, at the end of all this, you got this, uh, you got Caiaphas, he, he unwittingly, prophesies this awesome thing that Jesus is going to do, his redemptive work, his healing work, his unifying work, his uh, all of this, his forgiveness, cleansing, all this stuff. I mean, he's, he's prophesying this. doesn't mean to, but he prophesies it. And so at the end, so, you read that last verse. So, so from that day on, they plotted and planned how to kill Jesus. Because what do you mean by it? This guy's got to go because the Romans are going to be mad at us. And so from that day forward, they plotted and they planned how they were going to kill Jesus. They came to a conclusion. And so his death was declared, his, de- his sentence was declared on that day. The Sanhedrin declared, this guy's going to die. This is what's going to happen. And I will say this, and, and if you can understand this, understand it. If you can't, you can't. Don't worry about it. But words of prophecy in the mouth are not evidence of grace in the heart. And you need to always remember that. If you ever get around Christians and people who prophesy on a regular basis, 
Words of prophecy in the mouth are not evidence of grace in the heart. And that's the truth. Because this guy, I mean, he prophesied, but he's still ready to kill him. And, and I find the end of the verse kind of interesting because you understand it in the two different ways it's meant. The first way was, okay, well, he said, this guy's got to go so the Romans don't come down on us, so let's figure out a way to kill him. But then on the other side, it's like, uh, there's a redemptive work about to happen here. There's a work that is going to unify. There's a work that's going to uh, gather people. There's a work that's going to include people. There's a work that is going to relate us to people around us. I mean, it's an awesome work that's about to take place through this redemptive work of Jesus. And so the end, end thing here is like, so we need to get it done. We need to bring about the will and the purposes of God for Jesus' life. How? Through his death. And so either way you want to look at it, and you can choose to look at it either way you want, but either way you want to look at it, it's going to have the same result, and that's Jesus is going to die. But understanding the purposes behind it, understanding the plan behind it, understanding the bigger picture of it, I think gives us a broader and a less fear-reactive way of seeing the world around us. And if we can do that, let's do it. Because I don't want to live in fear. I don't want to watch Christians live in fear. I don't want to watch you live in fear. I don't want to watch people live in fear. I just I want to believe that we can see something bigger. I want to believe that we can know something bigger. I want to believe that we can take hold of our perspectives and take hold of the way that we're seeing things, understanding things, taking things in and, and live in a bigger space than what our fear is going to allow. Because fear makes life tiny. Tiny. But a bigger picture of God and a bigger picture of what He's about and what He's doing, a bigger picture of His love makes life a lot bigger. And I want to live in those big spaces. Let's take a moment and I just want to encourage you to respond to maybe something God's speaking to you about. Uh, tonight, as, as I was speaking, I touched on a few different things. And, and I wanted to make sure I, I laid enough groundwork that you'd understand that other places in the New Testament, they're, they're talking about this. Because they, they're still living under persecution. They're still living under threat. They're still living under in, in different parts of the New Testament being chased around and, and and they're still living under a certain amount of of people that are out to get them. And so they needed a bigger perspective. And part of the gift of a larger perspective over their lives was to see this death of Jesus and see this work that the Father did through Jesus through a bigger lens. That we're not afraid of the Sanhedrin. God just uses them to bring about His purpose and His plan. We're not afraid of the Romans. God's going to use them to bring about His purpose and His plan. We're not afraid of the decree of this person or that person. Because even when they think they're saying one thing, they're really prophesying something else. And so understanding that, I think, is to gain a bigger trust and a bigger vision 
in, of the God that we serve. And you see these things just spread throughout the New Testament, reminders of these things. You see these things spread throughout the New Testament of, of God's overall purposes being fulfilled. And so, Father, I pray that you would begin to expand the way we see things. I pray we could get a bigger picture of your purposes being fulfilled. Your purposes being fulfilled in the world that we live in and your purpose is being fulfilled in our lives. Your purpose is being fulfilled in the lives of our family or our friends. Your purpose is being fulfilled uh, in the places that we work or that we go to school. I just ask you, Father, that we could take hold of something bigger, like a bigger perspective, a bigger way of seeing things, a, a bigger way of understanding things that are going on around us, that we wouldn't just live in the small place but we'd move into big, wide-open spaces. We wouldn't just live in that little spot that that whoever would want us to stay in, but that we would learn to live, no matter what is around us, learn to live in a bigger, bigger, and even bigger place. So God, uh, I just ask you tonight that we would see things differently. I pray that you'd help us to check our petty judgments, and I mean just our, our small-minded judgments of this is good, this is bad, whatever. But we can begin to see things bigger and better. We can see things in terms of purpose and see things in terms of words being fulfilled, see things in terms of what you've said, see things in terms of faith, see things in terms of the prophetic word, see things in terms of what it is that you're actually doing in the world that we're living in. Yeah. So I pray, Father, that you would forgive us of our small-mindedness. And I pray something bigger, something grander. I pray in us, through us. I pray we'd be a voice of life. We'd be a voice, God, of hope. We'd be a voice of faith. We'd be a voice of perspective. We give you thanks tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm -hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways. So musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. Yeah, there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm hmm Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University... UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm hmm So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You're home, yeah.